You're listening to the fifth episode of Shawzy 24-7. Welcome to the Shawzy 24-7 podcast. Shawzy 24-7 podcast. Talking real estate, title insurance, development, business, and all things Philly. Now let's welcome in your host, He's back. Mark Shaw. Mark Shaw. And welcome back to another episode of Shawzy 24-7, bringing the worldwide element into play today, a little Mexican or Central American flavor. We're going to talk about owning a vacation home in Mexico. Many are scared to do it, and they don't pull the trigger. Their concern as a foreigner, you know, how can you own oceanfront property in Mexico? Are you in that boat? Uh, as a foreigner, do you actually own the oceanfront property? How does the Mexican corporation system versus land ownership work? Can the Mexican government take my property after I close? How do real estate taxes work? How about closing costs? How much are they? Can squatters take my property if I'm not at my home? How do capital gains work? How are they computed on the sale of the real estate? This is where my next guest comes in, Mitch Creekmore. Mitch is the head of multinational business development at Stewart Title Guarantee Company. He is a licensed Texas realtor and broker and has, a, and has been a certified international property specialist with over 30 years of commercial and residential real estate experience. Creekmore has written a plethora of articles on international real estate, as well as authored two books entitled Cashing In on a Second Home in Mexico and Cashing In on a Second Home in Central America. Mitch is a member of the International Advisory Groups for both the Arizona Mexican Commission, as well as the Texas Association of Realtors and the Houston Association of Realtors. Never cued that Spanish guitar, but I love that it's playing. It's now time to welcome in Mitch Creekmore. Welcome to uh, Shawzy 24-7. Pleasure to be on, Mark. Thank you. So Mitch and I got the opportunity to meet uh, down in Mexico approximately three weeks ago and I thought it was a great idea to have Mitch on and talk about purchasing property in Central America and specifically Mexico where Mitch's expertise obviously lies. The restrictions and the, the caveats and the, the hoops and the hurdles are obviously exaggerated in certain areas and in other areas they might not be so difficult so we're going to dive uh, deeply into that and in today's global economy and the way that people are able to travel and get on private airfare and so on and so forth, my guess is, is that this is becoming more of a prevalent thing. There's there's a lot of more affluent, uh, wealthy U.S. citizens and maybe even other foreigners that are looking to um, purchase property in Mexico. Is that correct, Mitch? Yes, it is, Mark. It, it, we, we went through a bit of a dramatic change uh, uh, by 2010 after the financial crisis in the United States of 2008. The Mexico market had really taken off from 1998 through the following decade to 2008. Naturally, Mexico lags behind the United States, so the trickle-down didn't really hit the Mexican market until 2010. And the reason for that was uh, financing went away, uh, home equity play went away, the interest in purchasing a second home, if we're talking strictly about residential real estate, really waned as a result 
that it was an all-cash market. Uh, and that really put a damper on uh, American and Canadian enthusiasm, not so much the Canadians, but for American enthusiasm about purchasing second homes in Mexico. Uh, and that's it's began to finally pick back up. Here we are almost uh, a decade later or right at, you know, yeah. And but we're seeing renewed activity in the various uh, principal markets for residential acquisitions. Obviously, as the, con- the economies are doing well and people are making some money and, you know, you, you see interest rates going up, so the dollar's strong. Um, you know, someone's interested in buying a property in Mexico or, you know, you can obviously elaborate into other, you know, the distinguishing factors in other areas in Central America, other countries. What type of restrictions, um, let's go through the obvious restrictions um, in terms of purchasing property in, uh, in, in the Central American countries as a, as a non-Mexican citizen? Okay. Well, what I want to do first is distinguish between Mexico and the Central American countries. Mexico is separate and apart. Uh, You've got seven Central American countries, including Belize. All of those countries are uniquely different and less complicated than Mexico. The reason that Mexico is complicated in the acquisition of residential real estate excuse me, is because of constitutional prohibitions that were created in the last Constitution of Mexico in 1917. In that Constitution, they created a prohibited zone, which is defined as 100 kilometers along all of Mexico's natural borders, so that includes all the border of the United States, Guatemala and Belize, 50 kilometers inland along all of the seacoast, the uh, beach properties, if you will, the coast of Del Mar, and all of the Baja Peninsula. And in 1917, the Constitution strictly forbidded any foreign ownership of real estate within this, quote, most prized area. Mexico realized by 1974 and starting in 1973 that that was a real prohibition on foreign investment into their country. So they created this concept called a fideicomiso. I won't spell it, but translated, it is a bank trust. And what it initially did in 1974 was to create a beneficiary interest for foreign purchasers in the acquisition of any real estate within this constitutionally defined uh, prohibited zone. What that meant was whether it was commercial, land acquisition, uh, land uh, purchase for resort, residential, um, industrial, whatever. Any piece of property that was located within 62 miles of the border, 31 miles of the coastline, and all the Baja Peninsula had to be vested for foreign beneficiary interest into this concept of the fideicomiso. In the equivalent, though, Mark, is that it was fee simple title. The issue was is that it was not fee simple like we're accorded, uh, accustomed to because you had a third party involved in the establishment of this beneficiary right, and that was a federally chartered Mexican bank. So they had 30 years to enjoy this property for whatever intended use it was, develop, mortgage, uh, but you had this third party that vested the title as the fiduciario, the trustee, and created this 30-year beneficiary interest. Mexico, again, realized, well, that's a prohibition. We're not going to get 
the foreign investment that we want to see, because at the end of that 30-year period initially, you had to dispose of the real estate. That didn't go over with a lot of major corporations. So in 1988, there was a, uh, a foreign investment law am amendment that said, well, we're going to allow for the renewal of that 30-year trust for another 30 years. We move forward to 1994. In 1994, what came into being? NAFTA. We're still dealing with that today, uh, as, as you see in the headlines. But part of that dovetail was the new foreign investment law, which Mexico enacted, that said, okay, we've rethought our strategy. And so this is where we are today about foreign ownership of any real estate within the restricted zone of Mexico. Today, if I go and buy land, whether it be for commercial purposes, industrial purposes, mixed-use development purposes, uh, a shopping center, uh, a retail store, uh, whatever, but it's located within that restricted zone, I can, because it's commercial and application, vest the title in a Mexican corporation, which you and I, Mark, can create with no foreign, or excuse me, with no Mexican participation. Prior to 1994, if you and I, Mark, wanted to go down and buy land for industrial development, we had to have a Mexican partner, uh, the, the old 51-49% adage on a commercial basis, and they had to have controlling interest in that. Come 1994, they said, nope, no, no Mexican participation. Foreigners can now create their own Mexican corporation, title vested in that Mexican corporation for the intended development. The difference now is that in the residential sector, Anytime you buy a single-family lot, a single-family detached dwelling, a townhome or condominium, and that residential property intended for third-party residential use, that title today must be vested in the fideicomiso. However, today it is a 50-year renewable for 50-year beneficiary interest in the Mexican bank trust. That's what makes Mexico complicated. It's the only country in all of Latin America and Europe and anywhere in the world that has this prohibition on how ownership uh, must be established by foreign purchasers. Is it one renewal, one 50-year span after the, the original 50 years? Good question. The law is silent to that. There is no termination of the trust. We don't know what's going to happen 100 years out. Because obviously they changed the law in 1994. Those trusts, any if you had a 30-year initial uh, fideicomiso bank trust, when it renewed, it automatically renewed to a 50-year trust. So we had renewals that came up on the 30-year, and now they renew for 50 years. But today there's never been a renewal uh, of the 50 plus 50 going forward. We don't really know what's going to happen. And you and I won't be around to see it anyway. What is the administrative proceeding or how does the uh, actual renewal take place? You need to contact within the prior six months about is what we, we recommend to contact the bank who is administering uh, the bank trust that you want to renew. There will be a renewal fee. Uh, it has varied so far, but it's not uh, prohibitive. Generally speaking, the renewal fee may a uh, one-time fee of 2000 2500 depending upon the particular bank, and then it renews 
for that next 50-year period. The 30-year fideicomisos completely went away. So anybody that had the initial trust at 30 years, when they renew it, it becomes a 50-year trust going forward. Right, because I can imagine still, somebody buys a property and they want to be able to um, convey it via their will to their heirs. Correct. And so, That's correct. so their estate can essentially renew the, the, the trust there. That's correct. Okay. Um, typically speaking, when someone buys a property in Mexico, it sounds to me that they're buying it through some form of corporation or LLC. Is that the case? Or is it, do any, anybody ever buy it with their personal names, with their U.S. social security numbers? Like, how does that work? Cannot. Every transaction in Mexico is Mexican. So, again, uh, focus first on residential. A purchaser of residential real estate in the restricted zone that has to create the trust, an LLC, an LP, even uh, an IRA, can go in and establish beneficiary trust rights so that a, I'm here in Texas, a Texas LLC becomes the beneficiary of that 50-year trust. The title is still vested in Mexico. All of the closing uh, establishment of the trust rights, everything is 100% Mexican. When you go in and you're purchasing commercial real estate, then that would become a limited liability company. Uh, you cannot purchase land for development commercially intended in your, ind in your individual name. It has to be a Mexican corporation. Uh, typically, a limited liability mark would be uh, what we call a Sociedad de, de Responsabilidad Limitada de Capital Variable. It's an SA to CV, SRL to CV. Our Mexican corporation, Stewart Title Guarantee of the Mexico, is an SA to CV because we had Mexican capital uh, as an insurance company and had to be approved. However, if you and I go down and we create a Mexican corporation, for our intended development in a commercial venue, then that's going to be an SRL to CV. Um, if on the residential side, you're no longer in the restricted zone, then it can be fee simple title in your name. So Mexico City, Cuernavaca, Guadalajara. Anything inland. Anything that's inland yeah. over the 62 mile limit or 31 mile limit, fee simple title in your name. Got on it. residential real estate. So go through the typical offer, acceptance, and closing process and compare it to that of the United States. What are the main differences from the point of an actual offer, acceptance, to closing? Okay. Um, generally speaking, and again, I'm when you get into commercial, we're, they're using formalized commercial contracts. Uh, it may be a contrato de compraventa buy sell agreement. It can be a letter of intent. Um, typically, attorneys on the commercial sector are going to be drawing up formalized contracts. The commercial contract is going to probably specifically outline how the closing is going to occur. That's what you're saying. The um, I, I guess yeah. let's let, let's Terms backtrack and let's talk first residentially. Um, is some, someone goes down to you know, an area of Mexico, let's say they're in the West Coast beaches of Mexico for spring break or for winter break with their family, and they fall in love with the land and they say, you know what, we're going to buy our retirement home right here in Mexico. 
what is the process that they have to go through and what are some of the differences in that process as it pertains to um, the process that you and I well know of in the United States? Sure. First and foremost, there are no promulgated contracts. If you're buying residential real estate in Texas, California, Arizona, wherever, and possibly in, in Pennsylvania, we have a one to four family promulgated contract, fill in the blank, correct, for residential. None of that exists in Mexico. You can initially use um, a, a letter of intent, but somebody is going to have to draw up a, a what typically is a, what we call a contract of promise to trust. Again, because if you're in the beach areas and you're looking at residential real estate purchasing by a foreigner, well, that's got to be in the fideicomiso. So that's why it's called a contrato de promesa de fideicomiso. It's a contract of promise to trust, right? And that still has to be, can be drawn up by the parties, can be drawn up by an independent Mexican attorney. A Mexican notario publico, who is a public notary, but they are the highest attorneys in the land, they are the cradle-to-grave operation in Mexico. It is their way or the highway. They're going to prepare the deed. They're going to bring buyer and seller together. They're going to consummate the transaction. They're going to record the documents. Not only are they judicially responsible, but they're also fiscally responsible. So if there are any capital gains taxes that are owed, the transfer taxes that must be paid to the federal government, closing costs, their honorariums, um, the trust fees, uh, the trust permit, all of those things are mandated. A lot of the times they're, they're fee certain or there's specific fees that must be paid, but all of that is going to be held uh, or handled by the public notary. Real estate agents in Mexico also are not licensed. The only state in Mexico of the 32 states that has a licensing requirement is the state of Sonora that borders with Arizona. But if you go to Puerto Vallarta, if you go down to Playa del Carmen, if you're in Cancun, if you're in Los Cabos, there is no licensing requirements for the agents down there. So I think it's always incumbent upon uh, anybody that's going to look at purchasing real estate from a residential perspective to get good sound advice and understand the process of what, you know, the fideicomiso is and how it's going to be handled. We steward title guarantee the Mexico. We have no legal standing to close anything. We are not a title company in Mexico. We are a service provider. So we don't record documents like we do in the U.S. We don't prepare deeds that are maybe handled by outside counsel, uh, taxes, all those types of things that would be common for a title company in the United States do not exist at all in Mexico, nor for that matter, anywhere in Central America and Latin America. Gotcha. Uh, this is good stuff, Mitch. And, you know, let, let's go backtrack a little bit in terms of uh, you start mentioning some of the closing costs, transfer tax, so on and so forth. Um, obviously, right. they could be somewhat of a hoop and a hurdle uh, for an American to purchase property, you know, vacation. Let's say they they go to one of these non-licensed realtors in Cancun or Playa del Karma, and they, they fall in love with the place, like I mentioned before. Um, what are some of the closing costs, sure. and how do they get computed? Is, there, is it a percentage? Is it a, is it a flat cost? How does that work? It is, generally speaking, Mark, it is a percentage. 
So let's first deal with the transfer tax. The transfer tax to the federal government of Mexico is estimated at 2% of the declared value of the operation. Again, that's one of the unique things about Mexico. The declared value should be the purchase price. And the markets have changed very well to have it not be what the seller wants to see in the in the deed in the escritura pública but what the actual purchase price is and as you the buyer you want to make sure that w- the price that's in that deed that public instrument is what you're actually paying for the property and here's the reason why the seller has some basis in that property when he transfers it and sells it to a third party there is a capital gains liability if there's been any gain I'll give you an Capital example. Capital gains liability. Mark, um, you you're go, talking about uh, tax that's in Mexico, a federal tax. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. That is correct. It's uh, Everything is Mexican. Nothing in the United States. Everything is Mexican. So you go down and you decide that you're you're going to uh, – you, you purchase a house at $100,000, okay? Five years down the road, you go to sell it. There's been appreciation in the house. And you're going to sell it for 150000 So if the deed states 100000 purchase price, 150000 sales price, there's a $50,000 gain. And the capital gains tax in Mexico today is 33%, kind of like our U.S. taxes, right? But it's 30%, 33% of the, of the declared gain. Sometimes, Sub, though, the sellers will put a lower value in there <clears throat> and all of a sudden, so you paid a hundred thousand, but what's in the deed is 50,000. Then you go Your and sell it for 150,000. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You, you just went, your basis just went up by 50,000 and you're having to pay tax on a hundred thousand rather than right. the actual and the same 50, problem. Can happen so here, yeah. that's a caveat. Um, how, yeah. how about so transfer tax is a percentage right. of the purchase price. What is the transfer tax? Two percent, and that's shared by both sides. That's what I meant to ask. Is it okay? So nope. It's all on the buyer. Oh, that's, that's another unique thing. It's all on the buyer. The only the only cost in the in the conveyance of real estate that the seller is responsible for is any capital gains liability, if there is right. one, and his pro rata share of the taxes, the notary fees, recording costs, trust fees, trust permit. Uh, Everything else in that, the on closing, the all is, How about, is on the buyer. Is the tax, um, does the tax change at all as the purchase price goes up? Obviously, there's certain states in the U.S. where there's a, I guess, a so-called mansion tax. You know, uh, in Mexico, if, if let's say someone's buying a property for over a million dollars, does the tax go up? No, same thing, no. 2% across the board. Correct. Now, when it comes to and that's a pretty when it comes to that's a pretty big figure. Yeah, of course. When it comes to the actual title um, and insurance thereof, let's talk about that. Uh, how is how does Stewart get involved, and where does, what does Mitch oversee? Okay. Uh, again, in the evolution of this process, when we first started in 1994. Nobody understood in Mexico what title insurance was. Agents, even though they were American, may not have had much experience in dealing with title insurance because they always relied on the title companies to handle it. It was, you know, it was a mandatory requirement. Here in the state of Texas, if I sell my property, 
it must come with an owner's policy of title insurance. If the buyer is getting a mortgage, then he's got to cover the title insurance for the lender policy. In Mexico, none of that exists. So when we first went down to Mexico and began pioneering this concept of a contract of indemnity, which is the definition of, of a title policy, a lot of people said, well, we don't, we don't need that. We, you know, we don't need that. We have a notario publico who's, who's uh, an attorney and the highest attorney in the land appointed by the governor. It's a lifetime appointment. They're responsible for it. So why do we need title insurance? Because public notaries provide no indemnification in the event of a defect right. in title, fraud, uh, missed errors, uh, encroachments, easements. There's no requirement that there has to be a survey. So we began educating the marketplace because these were common things that we take for granted here in the United States that didn't exist in Mexico. And, you know, I, I, again, a concept like escrow, very basic to all of our dealings with U.S. real estate, correct? Well, escrow didn't exist. Notaries didn't want to hold money. Banks were not, uh, did not want to have any liability to funds in a real estate transaction. If they were going to have to create an escrow, it was generally speaking 1% to 2% of whatever the purchase price was of the real estate. So that was certainly prohibited. So who did you give earnest money to? Either the seller or the real estate agent in the transaction. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Here you're dealing. So when we first went down, they said, well, that's customarily how we do it. You write a check for the uh, consideration, the earnest money, and I have a, quote, broker trust account. We will escrow those funds into that account for the benefit of the transaction. Well, guess whose account that was? Right. The agent. In 2000, more than $2 million fled the Cabo market. Uh as a result of an agent, when the market had a had a, uh, a slip, it, it, it had uh, an adjustment, if you will, and things stopped. And all of a sudden, people you know got ready to close, and the agent had been holding all of this money, uh, had been robbing Peter to pay Paul. So it fled the market. So literally, at the at at, at the start of the new millennium, we created the concept of of escrow. And uh, it, it just, we literally you know, pioneered you know, having escrow be with, with the U.S. title company, funds in a U.S. bank, uh, an independent, neutral, disinterested third party, which is the definition of escrow. And it really accelerated the market. Now buyers got really excited about looking at residential real estate because they could put their money kind of in a safe haven with a U.S. company being the, the title agent, yeah. if you will, yeah, and, and is in a U.S. bank, rather than giving it to the seller or to an agent in Mexico. Because once, once you gave that, Mex that money to the agent or the seller in Mexico, gone, yeah. it was gone. So there's protection now, and the next question goes along those protection lines. You mentioned a survey. How often does someone, uh, a buyer, or all, I shouldn't even say how often. When do you suggest uh, a buyer uh, obtain a survey on their actual, I guess, is it a legal description? I mean, how is a lot lines, um, 
how, how are they developed and how are they um, verified uh, when purchasing in Mexico, sp- specifically when it's not a condo and it's a, it's a single family home that has its own dimensions? Right. Generally speaking, purchasers do not do surveys on, on individual res- residential acquisitions. With that said, if you're on a commercial transaction, then prudent buyers are going to require surveys, um, uh, what we call levantamientos topográficos, and they're very good su- surveys. The surveyors are engineers. But on the residential sac- sector, what you have or should have are subdivisions that have been authorized and approved at the municipal level that lay out via a plat map or development plan the various lots that are in there with, yeah, yeah, meets and bounds descriptions. There'll be an overall plat, but they will not go in and have any requirement for doing an individual survey like we do on our lots here. Obviously, a lender wants to see an updated survey if they're going to make a loan on a particular residential project property in the United States. They don't do well, that in Mexico. Then again, you don't have well, lending in Mexico. What happens in a situation, or maybe it doesn't happen at all because Mexico doesn't allow it, but the, the plat's drawn, the, the, the map is there, it's recorded, it's wherever located in the central government um, records. I assume it's by state. Um, the, there's one lot let's just say, is, is a little bit oversized. And the owner in Mexico decides, you know what, I'm going to get this subdivided and I'm going to build three homes on this instead of my one home with this huge open space. And then I'm going to sell the two other homes and keep one for myself. Does that happen? Right. And if and so, um, is that a situation where you would recommend a survey done? Yes, it would be. But also, it's got to be approved. If if there are no deed restrictions or what we call z- zoning restrictions, what we call uso de suelo, use of the land, then and and you you are permitted by the horizontal condominium regime or the subdivision authorization, uh, and you're permitted to be able to subdivide that particular lot. You still have to go in and have it formalized. You would have to have a plat map. You would have to have a new document that creates these three lots that's going to be filed of record. But you would still, and, and, and it, in order to do it, you're going to have the same type of requirement. Whether you're doing 50 lots or one lot divided into three lots, you still have to have those approvals to be able to go in and, and right. subdivide it. But you first are going to have to look at the deed restrictions and, on the property. And I'm more focused on the potential case where um, the land is subdivided and the builder developer decides to overbuild on one or more lots and that's where the the problem might come so it it was was approved but there was an encroachment that was created by the overbuild right Um, in that situation i'm assuming a a buyer you know you let's say you're buying in in a in a in a subdivision you know, you're you're taking it for granted in a lot of cases. Okay, the subdivision was approved. The meets and bounds are, are what it says they are, but that doesn't mean there wasn't an encroachment. Correct. So that creates a little bit of, uh, need to say, a bit of a complication. And you go in and you do the survey and you see that an encroachment has been created. Uh, you're going to have to do 
again in Spanish, a rectificación de la escritura, a rectification deed to get the two lots correct in terms of what is actually on the ground via that survey. And you, you'll go in, there's a process called an afeo and deslinde, which basically the parties agree that these are the dimensions of these lots. They've been set out, they've been surveyed, you've got a certified surveyor attesting to these dimensions, and then the, the notario publico will prepare a new document that sets out these two lots being at these correct dimensions so that there's no longer a conflict or an encroachment So the situation is not, not too uh, much unlike the U.S. system where, look, if there's a problem with the survey, you've got to rectify it. That's, that's what it is. And, you know, you order a survey when you don't trust the situation. You can use your eyeball test. And if it looks like it's, it's, it's a new development and you don't trust the developer and you feel the need of getting a survey, get a survey. And if you've seen encroachment, you deal with it at that point. Right. And one caveat, Mark. In the go-go days of Mexico, the developers had their sales offices and they'd have their plat mats up and they'd have their, their sales plans and their sales agents working. And what you had were lines on a, pra- on a paper. Unbeknownst to the buyer, they didn't realize that this subdivision had not legally been created. There was no horizontal regime that had actually been protocolized by the notario and filed of record. So at the end of the day, you'd go in and you'd enter into a purchase and sale agreement and you'd close on this lot. And yet you couldn't get the bank trust established because the lot didn't legally exist. And we ran into a number of subdivisions in Mexico where that was a problem. The same thing could occur in a horizontal condominium regime. They're selling the units in the tower, but that condominium regime has not been formalized and filed of record. So again, the bank trust cannot be established. Uh, Mexico has really cracked down very much on those issues to not permit the sale of, of these types of properties, whether they be condominiums, townhomes, or single family lots without having formalized approval of either the horizontal regime or the condominium regime so that when you actually close, they can convey the property and establish your beneficiary trust rights. Mitch, we've we've talked a lot about Mexico over the last couple of minutes, (coughs) offer acceptance, closing process, transfer tax, title insurance, how it all works. Um, we haven't, uh, we've gone away from the, the rest of Central America. Let's kind of just circle back. Are there any major differences with what we just spoke about uh, with the other countries in Central America versus Mexico? Yes. None of these prohibitions, um, constitution, otherwise they don't exist in the other countries. Belize of the seven Central American countries is not a civil code jurisdiction like Mexico and the other six Central American countries. It is a common law jurisdiction. So the difference is there who handles the conveyance and the establishment of real property rights in the country of Belize are solicitors, just like they would be in Canada, just like they would be in Great Britain. Um, When you go to Panama, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, um, and uh, Costa Rica, all those countries are civil code jurisdictions. So again, the concept of the public notary, the notario publico, 
They are the cradle-to-grave operation for the conveyance and the establishment of real property rights. Costa Rica is unique in that they typically use Costa Rican corporations to vest the title in. Uh, they feel like that that's a more advantageous way for you to own the real estate and convey the real estate via the Costa Rican corporation. Not an issue with that. When you go into the other Central American countries, the other five, typically it can be fee simple title in your name or it can be in a corporation, but they don't have any, you know, any of the prohibitions um, like Mexico does. The act, re- overall activity in these countries is very limited. Panama is probably the most um, active-wise because of the retiree benefits that they provide. Uh, in, in Panama, it is a dollar-based economy, over a 100-year relationship with the United States as a result of all the canal activity. You can go to anywhere in Costa Rica and be able to buy real estate in dollars as opposed to in pesos or uh, generally they're they're in pesos or believe it or whichever country you're in Um, and there are a lot of incentives if you want to be a quote retiree and you're there enough during the year you have very significant benefits under two different visa programs uh, the rentista and the pensionado, like a pension or, or, or renter, but they, these are the two types of visas, has to be a requirement for certain amounts of monies to be bought, deposited in Panamanian banks. But if you establish those types of, of, of visas for your residential purposes in country in Panama, you're part of their so, social security network, you're part of, of their uh, benefits program with, with uh, medical and dental, uh, purchasing, uh, store benefits. I mean, so it's a, it's a very lucrative program that they try to provide to foreign purchasers that want to become retirees in the country. You don't have a lot of activity in Honduras and Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, because there's not a lot of infrastructure. Um, in, the, in the case of Honduras, the Royatan Islands have been very prominent because, again, it is more of an island-type property where you have upscale developments um, and then you've got the Eastern Caribbean you get into the countries uh, that are that are again some are common law jurisdiction St. Kitts, St. Lucia, Turks and Caicos, the Bahamas, Jamaica you go to the Dominican Republic which is uh, an Eastern Caribbean country that reverts to co- uh, civil code jurisdiction and again the use of notaries it is a Spanish-speaking uh, country surrounded by English-speaking countries that are common law in nature. Mitch, you know that another unique part of Costa Rica is it's where I met my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Congratulations. Well, a long time ago. Well, Beautiful we, country. We, we were both from Beautiful Philadelphia, country. but we ended up meeting there actually in the airport before we got there. But Mitch, from a scale of 1 to 10, yeah. what is the, let's say, the, the safety um, not not from a crime standpoint or from a from a personal safety standpoint. I'm talking about from like a, from a fiscal standpoint, losing your money, um, purchasing a property in Mexico and the other Central American countries, um, from government change, from you know potential fraud, 
so on and so forth. I'd put uh, Mexico at the top. I would certainly put Costa Rica uh, next to that. Belize as a common law jurisdiction, Panama. As you get into the countries that have higher levels of poverty, not that Mexico is not 60% poor, but you also have a population of 110 million. Mexico is bigger than all of the Central American countries put together. Uh, and so there are very much precautions that are taken in the uh, real estate communities. You have the major franchises as an example that are down there. Um, and so as, as far as uh, the educational awareness that has that has come about in these markets, the agents have become much more professional. Uh, you don't hear about like we did you know, 15, 20 years ago um, about fraudulent conveyances or somebody not having good title and not knowing what to look for uh, in these countries and working with the agent. So everything is vastly improved. Um, I, I, I think, again, the education level of foreign purchasers is vastly more sophisticated than it was uh, 20 years ago. People do very good research that if they're going to be looking at a particular country. For example, you and your wife met in Costa Rica. You've been down there you know, all over the country. Costa Rica is sophisticated. Costa Rica is a very literate country. And uh, their agents and their notaries there perform at a very high level. Uh, but you don't have the same diversity of markets like you do in, for example, in a country of Mexico. Uh, 46% of the land area in Mexico is on water. And so you've got developments up and down those coastlines, you know, from the time when you leave uh, the border at, at Brownsville, Texas, all the way around through the Gulf of Mexico, through the Yucatan Peninsula, all the way up the Pacific coast and going all the way to uh, Land's End and Baja California. These other countries are much smaller uh, uh, by that. So, but I, I think generally speaking, those four countries, including Belize, are, are, are very protective uh, with regard to the purchase of real estate. The land rights. So you're saying that you're, from a one to 10, do you see any difference? I mean, it's the security, your fiscal security and your land security. Um, it's right up there with, a, with purchasing in the United States. I mean, you feel very secure and you feel like Stuart can, can ensure um, an, a, a, a non-citizen, an American or a European, purchasing property and, and knowing that they're not losing their pants. Correct. And in, even in Mexico, we can insure it to Mexican nationals because we're a Mexican insurance company. Yes. And, and I think what you have is that um, the, the markets have, you know, the, the land registry systems in these countries are very good. We would not be insuring title in these countries if we didn't understand their registry, their title certification, their recordation process, and the handling by the, uh, by the public notice, the notarios publicos. Uh, we're very comfortable with um, the registry systems. Costa Rica is probably the most sophisticated in that it has what they call the folio real system. It's an online and it's the only country that has an online registry. But you have to know what you're doing. You can't just go online and be able to 
run title on on properties. So typically you're having to work with somebody that knows their way around the public registry. We are using attorneys. We you know we had 22 employees in Mexico City that were that were doing a lot of our title work um, back before the the market tanked. Um, but the the sophistication of the registries are all very similar and all very good. But don't confuse it with the United States. You call up any title company and say, I need to see a chain of title, or can you tell me in the deed records who owns this particular piece of property? We do it online, and we can do it very quickly. <coughs> Excuse me. You can't do any of that in these other foreign jurisdictions, and in, and, and in particular Mexico. Mitch, if someone buys a property in Mexico... Uh, and they're using it, let's say, two months a year. You know, they're coming down during the winter months or three months a year, January through March. Um, and they decide to rent it out the rest of the time. Um, is there a traditional landlord-tenant issue that is um, prevalent here? Um, I, I shouldn't say prevalent, but I, it, it, how does the landlord-tenant process work in Mexico? Say the, say the vacationer comes back and the tenant has not vacated. How does the eviction process work? Is it easy? Is it hard? Is it costly? Is it common? Generally speaking, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be common, Mark. You do have homeowners associations. Um, you do have management associations for residential properties. That would be, say, in a subdivision. You have homeowners association and condominium and townhome projects, and they typically will have. Um, the ability to put that property in a quote rental pool and that management association and company is responsible uh, for the benefit of the owner to see that rents are collected. Uh, the owner of the unit is still responsible for his property taxes. Uh, but generally speaking there, you know, if there's a signed lease and let's say they sign a lease for six months or they're coming to come down, sometimes they, They'll put it in a rental pool, and they're renting it out on a weekly basis. Or it's more like an Airbnb uh, to, type of thing. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> but they do have uh, the management associations and property homeowner associations. Somebody that has been established to be able to rent out those properties and be responsible for it. So if they're possession. They're managed is a, is, like a management. Yes, firm. exactly, exactly. Does the management uh, firm or the association do they keep a fee? Yes. Yes, they do. They're, they're going to be compensated for the work and the service that they're providing for the benefit of the owner of the union. Generally speaking, in that situation, you're not going to have to worry about squatters or homestead. Uh, if somebody could establish squatters rights over a two year period, then it, it would become very problematic. You do have in other outlying areas and other places. And generally speaking, it's with land. It is not with units or residences. Uh, uh, squatters that will invade quote unquote land right. uh, but if they get on the land and they've been there and can establish the fact how long they've been there then it could be a little more problematic to have a root but you do have eviction laws as well mm -hmm. but most of the situations they're uh they're you're saying it's through an association or or That's group correct. that manages it. Uh, say it's a single family home and it's not part of an association. Do the eviction laws, I mean, how, how complicated are they? No, it's not. But you're going to have to go and find an individual company or individual that can handle 
uh, that the management for you. These houses, uh, you know, again, if if you're not a retiree and you have, uh, you know, friends of mine, for example, they they bought a lot. Uh, they built a house on it. They had to oversee the construction. Now they're they're only using the house maybe a couple of months out of the year. The rest of the time, they are actively trying to keep the house uh, leased up. But in order for them to do that, I mean, they're you know they have they have jobs here in the United States. Both are working, so they fire somebody on an ongoing basis to manage that that property, that house, uh, making sure that it's clean, making sure that it is maintained, and making sure that people check in. They they have to check in with the manager. They have to check out with right. the manager. And, you know, so it's it, very common and, and very accessible to be able to do that in, you know, in these particular markets. I'm guessing there's a lot of that because the person that's buying a property in Mexico, they're not using it for 12 months. That's correct. Right. Is there expanded coverage uh, when you're buying such an asset? Can you buy uh, coverage for, let's just say, appreciation? So you get the benefit of the appreciation if, if in the case there's some sort of, um, let's Let's call the, the the normal conservative American who doesn't want to buy the property in Mexico because they're scared of government taking. Well, one that can't happen. Uh, they the government does not have the right to go and confiscate uh, real estate. The foreign investment law, as well as NAFTA, prohibits that from occurring in Mexico. You and I, you uh, and you and I know that. I'm just saying the general, generally speaking, the fear about buying property in Central America is probably the, the uncertainty that doesn't really exist, but it does exist in those people's minds. Yeah, but in, and in, in that regard, Mark, there is, there is no what we call expropriation insurance that's covered under title insurance. Government insurrection, political unrest, those types of issues are not covered under a title insurance. Now, if your property appreciates in value, and let's say that you've had the property for five or ten years, there were people that, again, back in the go-go days, that uh, they saw tremendous appreciation in, in the hot markets. If they wanted to increase the insurance coverage, the amount of the insured value, they could go back and get an appraisal done and say, well, y'all insured this property at 200000 but now it's worth 400000 we want to increase the coverage and we would give them that benefit. But it wasn't going to be arbitrary in nature. It had to be something that could be verified and via an appraisal from, a, you know, from a, a, an authorized or, or approved registered uh, appraiser that could provide that type of uh, verifiable information in order to increase the insurance coverage, not just because, well, I think my property's gone up $100,000, so I need to increase the coverage. Right. Um, Mitch, this has been awesome. I want to conclude with one last um, topic. What is your favorite part of Mexico and what areas of Mexico do you suggest um, to those uh, retirees or um, potential um, vacationers in, in the U.S. That want, that want to purchase property down there? What, what are your favorite spots? Good question, Mark. I, I try to, when people ask me about it after all these years, I, I tell them you need to decide whether you're a beach person or you're a colonial person you're an interior person and the reason i make that distinguishment there are a lot of people that 
want to be in the beach areas. They want to be close to the coast. So if you look at Cancun, uh, Playa Carmen is absolutely beautiful. That's what we call the Riviera Maya across uh, via ferry is Cozumel. Beautiful white sand beaches, Caribbean waters, great fishing, snorkeling, scuba diving. Also, the uh, uh, Quintana Roo, that area down all the way to south of Tulum, uh, you've got the cenotes, the underground uh, caverns where people dive. You've got the Mayan ruins that are beautiful in Tulum and in Coba. So that's one market. Go down the coastline, a lot of people uh, love Puerto Vallarta. Puerto Vallarta is still in the, Bahia, in the Bay of Banderas. It's a beach market, but it's very colonial um, in its in its accent, if you will, will uh, Mazatlan, Manzanillo, Extapa, Zihuataneo are smaller markets, but again, there are beachfront markets. Uh, and then you continue all the way into you know the Cabo San Lucas market, Arizona's beaches, uh, Puerto Penasco, Sonora, uh, as well as San Carlos and and Wymas. beautiful again, very unique markets. Obviously, the Arizonans, it's a drive-in market. They, you can drive from Phoenix three and a half hours and be at the water's edge, and in, in, uh, they affectionately call it Rocky Point. Um, and it's very popular for the Arizonans. And obviously, the Los Cabos market is very westernized, caters a lot to the West Coast, a lot of Texans, a lot of people from the United States, people from Chicago. So those are, are the, the more uh, beach markets. When you get into the interior... Some people love Mexico City. It is, in my opinion, I affectionately refer to it as organized chaos. My family <laughs> is from Mexico City. Um, my mother and my two aunts and my grandmother uh, all grew up in Mexico City. My grandmother was born there. My mother and my two aunts were born in Torreon. So, and I've been working in Mexico City now for 25 years. Um, my, my, Monterey and Guadalajara are the two next largest cities. When I say organized chaos, because if you're ever driven in Mexico City with 22 million people, <clears throat> it's not easy. Guadalajara, by comparison, has about 8 million people. Monterey has about 6 million people. But then you go to a place like San Miguel de Allende, uh, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, 74 degrees year-round uh, in the mountains, uh, a lot of American uh, retirees that are there, a uh, lot of uh, a, a, a very prominent art community that is there. The the three churches, what we call the uh, the uh, parroquia or parroquia, as, as they say there, uh, which is where the center of town, um, um, Dolores Hidalgo, Cuernavaca. Uh, there are just so many beautiful places in the interior of Mexico, depending upon. But again, no beachfront, very colonial, uh, and with with wonderful weather and uh, the attitudes there. The people are very friendly. The food is fantastic. The accommodations are very good. There, you know, been a lot of American companies have gone down uh, that have developed real estate in in the, in these communities. So it just depends interior versus coastline yeah well i'm a beach person so i envision myself one day sitting on a balcony with a glass of orange juice and reading the morning newspaper out down 
in the sunshine of Mexico. Uh, it'd be a nice, it's a nice thought, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And doable, too. It's, and very affordable. It seems like Keep it's doable mind. and affordable. It seems like it's more affordable than most vacation spots in America. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a great Cost service. Cost differential is tremendous. I mean, when you, you know, we were talking about when you look at the bank trust and you have to pay an administrative fee to the trustee bank, that, that trustee fee a year is maybe four or $500 per year. Right. Property taxes, very low, very low. The cost of living, exceedingly low. So Mexico and these other countries are very affordable compared to U.S. standards. It's the cost of time and getting on the airplane, you know, to you and from. Uh, Mitch, it's been awesome. Give, give the audience a chance to uh, be able to reach out to you in the case that they need to talk to you. How do they get in touch? Uh, direct line and call me at any time. You can reach me on this line anywhere in the world. 713-724-3381. I'll repeat. Area code 713, number 724-3381. My email address is m-c-r-e-e-k-m-o, m-creek-mo, at Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, Dot com mcreekmo at stewart.com Mitch, thanks for speaking today and uh, we'll definitely speak soon. I hope to do it again with you, Mark. It's my pleasure. All righty, Mitch. Talk to you soon. Thank you. So are you ready to buy a home in Mexico yet? I know that I can imagine sipping on my orange juice, reading the morning paper on a terrace. I'm picturing it right now. I hope you found listening to today's discussion on purchasing a vacation home in Mexico with Mitch Creekmore helpful. Uh, if you're not looking to buy a home yet in Mexico, I, you know, you, you listen this far, so maybe you will one day. If you did enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast and share with a friend who may also enjoy. You can also follow me on Twitter at Shawzy99 or email me at mshaw at www.landtransfer.com. Thanks for listening to Shawzy 24-7.